our Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have a a copy of the scriptures with you, please turn with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Chapter 14, and we're looking today at verses 1 to 23 especially. Samuel chapter 14 and just if you're using an NIV like me this morning you'll notice the last verse of uh, the previous chapter is grouped together and it says now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. One day Jonathan son of Saul said to the young man bearing his armor come let us go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side but he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash, the other to the south toward Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come then. We will cross over towards the men and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are, not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will come up because that will be our sign and the Lord, that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, the Philistines, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan, his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and the field, and those in the outposts and raiding parties. And the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah in Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, Muster the forces and see who has left us. 
When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God. At that time it was with the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and gone up with them to the camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So the Lord rescued Israel that day and the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. Please keep your Bible open there. One of my heroes from church history is this gentleman, a man by the name of Billy Sunday. He was a converted baseball player uh, and he was a, a baseball legend, but he became a gospel preaching legend. He had come to know the Lord Jesus Christ uh, after having a, a battle where his life was controlled by drink. And he could see himself starting to go downhill seriously. And through the the simple preaching of a gospel mission in a town, he gave his life to Christ. And like I said in my children's talk, he then made it his goal to go and tell other people the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And Billy Sunday was remarkably used by God to reach a whole nation. And I want to add two words. Of men. Of men. You see, Billy Sunday had a unique rapport with men. And when you see Billy Sunday's congregations, they were packed full of men. Now, you know, if you're a lady, how hard it is to get a husband to come to church, right? Well, these congregations were full of men. And he led multitudes to Christ across America. And uh, when he turned up at a town for a crusade, the people didn't wait for the meetings. They came to meet him at the station. Men would come off work early. They would pour out the factories. And the station would be packed with people ready to welcome him when he got there. And he was a great soul winner. They would build these great tabernacles, wooden tabernacles. And uh, they, they would, because the churches weren't big enough, they would build these huge wooden tabernacles on the outskirts of town. And multitudes of people would go to hear Billy Sunday preach an uncompromising gospel message. He was wonderfully used by the Lord. But what I love about Billy Sunday was he wasn't just a soul winner. He was also a disciple maker. And he also wanted to be an inspiration and an influence to God. And in his life, this was his great, uh, great passion to see men and women not only saved and say a prayer, asking Christ to be their savior, but to go on serving him. And he said some of his last words to all who read these pages, I urge with my closing words, live the Christian life. Live the Christian life. 
That was his great challenge. Live the Christian life. He said, men will admire you. Women will respect you. Little children will love you. And God will crown your life with success. And when the twilight of your life mingles with the purpling dawn of eternity, men will speak your name with honor and baptize your grave with tears when God attunes you for the evening chimes of life. He was a great influence for the Lord. Uh, And in fact, one of the things that happened as a result of his life and his ministry was the prohibition in America. Uh, Do you remember between 1920 and 1933, it was against the law to buy, sell, consume or import alcohol anywhere in America. Can you imagine that? You know, what is it, the one thing everybody in the world loves? They love their drink, don't they? And yet, under his preaching, men turned away from drink. And these laws were passed on force as a result of, uh, uh, of this life-changing preaching. In fact, his influence was so great that Frank Sinatra, do you remember that song he used to sing called Chicago? There's a line about Billy Sunday in that song. It calls Chicago the town Billy Sunday couldn't shut down. That speaks how big his influence and inspiration was. And he was used by God to not only win souls, but inspire them to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. Well, we're looking today at a man from the Old Testament who not only served God because he believed in him, knew him, but he inspired others to do the same. We're looking at a man called Jonathan, the son of King Saul. And he was, as we see in this chapter, and we see later in the chapter as well, a man who greatly inspired others. The book of, Saul, the book of Samuel is actually the story of three men. Uh, primarily. Somebody has called it three men in a boat. You've got Samuel the prophet, King Saul, who was the first king of Israel who went bad, and then King David, the later king. But at this stage in the story, in chapter 14, Saul has been rejected by God as king, and God has given a prophecy through Samuel that God is going to give a new king. In fact, chapter 13, verse 14 says, But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And you're at this stage wondering, well, who is this person going to be? Now, we all know it's going to be David because we've heard the story so many times. But to those who were reading the history for the first time, they didn't know. And the first person who comes up who's a possible candidate is Saul's own son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was a mighty man of God. His name means gift of Yah, gift of God. And he truly was. He was one who not only cared for the glory of God, he cared for the glory of, uh, uh, well, the, the good of God's servants. And he even submitted all to David and made a covenant with him, you'll remember, later on. But I love this part of the story especially because in this chapter here we see Saul being an um, Jonathan being an inspiration to the other men in Israel, and at the end they join him in the fight against the Philistines. And I want us to have a look at this this morning because you know the Bible calls us who are Christians to also try and be an example, to try and be an inspiration to others. Paul himself said this in 2 Timothy chapter 3 about his own life. He said, you however know all about my teaching, my life, my purpose, faith, patience, 
patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, in Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from them all. And he was saying, you know, you know how I lived. And he said, here and in Philippians 4, follow my example. The Lord calls pastors and elders in churches to be an example to the flock. 1 Peter 5, 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. I'm preaching to myself today and my brother deacons in the church. This is a challenge for us. We have examples in life. When Paul wants to talk to the church at uh, at Corinth about giving, he raises in 2 Corinthians 8 the example of the Macedonians who gave more than they could because they wanted to help the people in Jerusalem. That's actually what the Lord Jesus had done earlier on in Luke chapter 21 when he pointed out the widow who gave more than she really could when she put her mites into the offering. He said, look at her. What an example. See, scripture is full of examples and full of commands to be an example and an inspiration to others. And I want to say in this day and age, that is what we need. We need to be those who point people to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That he is the way you can get to heaven. By trusting in him and his death on the cross. It's the only way. But then follow him in your life. And the best thing we can do is to show that by our example. William Bates, a, a Puritan from years ago, said, Precepts instruct us what things are our duty, but examples assure us that they are possible. And that's right, isn't it? You know, we need to be people who show it. One in the eye is better than two in the ear. A life that shows the life of Christ is better than just telling people alone without that life to back it up. Otherwise, we're like the Pharisees who Jesus said, do what they say, but don't do what they do. We need to be those who inspire. And I want to ask you this morning, are you inspiring others? Not are you trying to impress others? There's a difference. Impressing is so everybody goes, oh, isn't he or she great? But inspiring is so that you, uh, that others want to follow the Lord with you. Well, that's what happened with Jonathan. So let's have a look at this chapter and apply it to ourselves under these four headings. His season, where he inspired, his start, his spirituality and his success. First of all, then, his season for inspiration in verses one to three. And uh, we start off the story in chapter 14 of Samuel, not with a prodigal son, as in Jesus' parable, but with a prodigal father, King Saul, the king who had gone astray. If you look in verse 2, it says, Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migran. With him were about 600 men. And uh, what you've got is a situation. Let me just paint the, the situation for you. Okay, this is where we are in the land of Israel today. We're in a very key, important place called the land of Benjamin. Paul was a Benjaminite. And we're in a very strategic area called the, ben, uh, the Plateau of Benjamin, the Benjamin Plateau, which later on would become the access for Jerusalem. And you've got significant cities here uh, that are around this, a little bit like the hills around Bath. Okay, what you've got, you've got Gibeon, you've probably heard of Gibeon in the Bible, you've got Gibeah, 
where Saul is. Then you've got Geba, where Jonathan and his army is. So you can see they're spread out. And then further, just a little bit away from Jonathan, you've got Michmash, which is where the Philistines are. And just for reference now, that's where uh, the, the, the cliffs were, where Jonathan climbed up uh, over the pass in that little area there. But that's the situation. And the Philistines have advanced into the land of Israel, the promised land that had been given to the people of God. And what we have is this situation where they've divided Jonathan and Saul. They're in different places and uh, they're, they're basically cutting them off from their, each other and from their supplies. And it's a serious situation. And what is Saul doing? Saul is sitting under a pomegranate tree. What's a pomegranate tree look like? It looks like that. It looks like that. It's a little tree. Now, some people think he might be copying Deborah in the book of Judges, who sat under a palm tree, you remember, in the book of Judges, chapter 4, pretending he's some great leader. But there is, a, there is a twist to this, because actually in the Hebrew, the word tree isn't there. We assume he was sitting under a tree, but there is another explanation. The, the other explanation is because he's sitting in a pomegranate, and there was a cave which is called Rimon in this area, which is a massive cave, and in the book of Judges, it held 600 men, which is how many were with Saul at this time. And Rimon means pomegranate. So he was hiding away in a cave, away from the battle and the place where he was meant to be. And the Philistines have come in, and he, he the tallest man, head and shoulder above everybody else, who was supposed to be the leader, was cowering away. What a terrible time this was uh, when this story happened. The nation was under judgment from God for asking for a king that they shouldn't have asked for. And so the Philistines had come in as according to the law of Moses that God would send foreign armies in to attack them. Saul was backslidden and the army of Israel was hiding in caves. They were all hiding away. And to add to that, the priesthood was corrupt. If you look in verse 3, it says, Among these 600 men was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother. Now, Ichabod, you read about earlier on, his name uh, means basically like forsaken. And uh, he was the son that was born to the, uh, uh, the two ungodly priests, or, or one of the ungodly priests, Phinehas. And it says there, he was uh, the brother of Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, again, a backslidden priest we read about at the beginning. And it says he was the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. And so uh, we have this backslidden priesthood with an army that's hiding and a king that's backslidden and the nation under judgment. What a dark and difficult time. And yet at this time, Jonathan rises up. And becomes the inspiration to lead the nation to victory. In fact, in verse 1 it said, One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. His father was saying, No, you're not doing that. <laughs> but uh, he, uh, he went and did it. Now, friends, can you see what a moment this was for Jonathan to step forward? And I believe Jonathan's season of inspiration was an inspiration later on to David. 
Because in 1 Samuel 17, when Goliath is threatening Israel and the armies of the Philistines, we have a repeat situation again. The army's cowering and afraid. Saul's hiding inside his tent. Everything's at a standstill. And there's a valley with mountains. And who's going to go and fight? David does as a result of being led by the Lord. But he's inspired, I believe, by Jonathan's story here. Jonathan rises up at a moment when it's needed. And you know, dear friends, this is what we need in our day and age as well. And I'm talking here especially to the Christians this morning. We are living in a day and age which is not dissimilar to this situation. Our nation is under judgment. And I want to say we're not heading for judgment. We are under judgment. Read Romans chapter 1. You'll see it. We are under judgment now. And it's going to grow and escalate as times go on. We're in a serious situation. The church is backslidden. It's weak and it's woke. It's bad. And the pulpits of Christianity are silent. We have blunt Bibles translated so that you would never even know what the scripture really says. It's just so watered down with uh, fake translations like the message and so on. People will never get convicted and converted with that stuff. Because it's not the word of God. We are in a crisis. And what we need is fresh inspiration to help us go forward to live for the Lord. You know, I read a book some time ago uh, about some Christians in Northern Ireland when there was a battle between uh, the Catholics and the Protestants. And you've got to remember, that's not just unsenseless violence. That was a stand for the truth against the papacy that wanted to take over and press out Christianity. And they were holding down the Protestants who were hiding inside a a city, but they wouldn't give up. They were trying to starve them to death, and they were praying inside. And do you know the comment, the book that the author gave? These sturdy Protestants didn't know when they were beaten. They never gave up. They just kept praying to the God they believed in. And eventually supplies came and rescue came and the the Catholic armies were pushed out. We need people like that today who look at the world and say, we're not beaten even though it looks like we are. I'm going to live for Jesus. I'm going to be different. This little light of mine, I want to let it shine. As the song says. Will you be such a person? Will you be such a person? Heard about a little boy who was walking home from church one day. Not walking home from church, walking with his father one day. And his fa- he asked his father, his dad, Daddy, what is a Christian? I've heard about Christians. And his dad explained it to him. And he said, Daddy, have I ever seen a Christian? Pow! Went through him like a knife. Father like a knife. His father was a Christian. Have I ever seen a Christian? Have you ever seen a Christian? Oh, how we need a new inspiration today. May God even work in our hearts here so that we start living for Jesus like we should and start inspiring one another to live for Christ. That's the season. Second thing I want you to see is his start in verse 4 to 7. Because what we see is he started small. Jonathan started small and grow. He didn't start off with a national campaign to lead the whole nation back. He started small. And if you and I are going to be an inspiration for God, 
That's where we're going to start too. He started with a place. Have a look in verse 4. He said, on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One called Bozes and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash and the other to the south towards Geba. Now, this place here was a strategic location. Let me show you a picture of what it looks like. Okay? This is the actual pass that leads through to Michmash. You've got uh, Michmash on this side and Giba on this side. And it had two cliffs on either side of this pass. It doesn't look very big here, but if you had to climb that, you would find it big. All right, and uh, you can see there's the path right down there. Now, on one side, you've got a cliff called Bozes, which means shining one. On the other side, you've got a, a cliff where you've got pointy rocks, which is called thorny one. Now, if you're spiritually minded, it's not rocket science to see what that's a picture of. They're facing each other as if in battle. The shining one and the thorny one. The shining one in scripture is Satan. Nahash, the serpent, the shining serpent in the Garden of Eden. The one who comes as an angel of light to deceive people. And on the other side, you've got the one who wore the crown of thorns, the thorny one. And they're facing each other. This is where the battle was. And this is where the Philistines were. And where Jonathan knew the battle had to begin. He went to the right place. He went to the right place. He didn't fight battles that weren't needed to be fought. I want to tell you that. That's, some of us have got hobby horses about things that don't need to be hobby horses. We need to fight the battles that are necessary for the cause of Christ. There's a right place to go and take the message and to get engaged uh, with the work of the gospel. But also, he started with the right person. In verse 6, Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. David didn't start with the whole army. He started with the person who was closest to him, his armor bearer, a young lad who would help him carry his army. Now, this is, needs a little bit of explanation. You see, in the land of Israel at that time, there were no ironmongers. This is actually the start of the Iron Age. But at this point here, the Philistines, as we read at the end of chapter 13, have stopped anybody running a smith smithy so that they can't make any weapons and nobody's got any weapons except Saul and Jonathan and Jonathan gives these to his armor bearer now that alone is inspiring his armor bearer is carrying them for him as a young lad he's given his shield to and he's given his sword to and later he will give those as a covenant gift to David but he's given that to, to this young man and he says to this young man come on Let's go and fight. Let's go over. In fact, three times in this passage, in verse 1, in verse 6, and then in verse 8, David says, uh, Jonathan says, come, come on, come on, come on. And he says to this young man, come on, follow me, let's go. And the young man's inspired. He says, go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul, in verse 7. Because he saw Jonathan had faith in the Lord. Jonathan knew that the Lord didn't need great armies. As he says in verse 6. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Whether by many or by few. He remembered the story of Gideon. 
How God whittled the army of Israel down to a small number. If God could do it with 300, why couldn't God do it with two? Or even one like David later on. He had faith in the Lord. Wasn't presumptuous. He said in verse 6, perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. But he had faith in God. And he laid his example before this young man and called him to follow. You know, somebody has said, you can impress at a distance, but to inspire, you have to be close up. And I think that's true. And this young man saw his life and saw Jonathan and said, yeah, I'm with you. Saw his faith and started to follow him. I want to tell you this, dear friends, that you and I need to be those who start locally, even in our own homes, to try and inspire others. There may be young people around us, in our families, in our community, in our youth groups, here at the church, who need to see a godly example. And need to see someone living the Christian life. Someone who we can say to them, come, follow me, let's go and do it together. So when you have a burger at McDonald's, you don't just sit like an animal and just dive into your food. Because that's what animals do. You say, let's say grace. Let's thank God for my food. And you pray together, even though you're in McDonald's. You influence people. You show that you read the Bible. You have a Bible in your house. When you come to church, you bring a Bible. You know, if I walk along with my phone, what is the difference between me and everybody else out there in the world? There's no testimony. I'm being a soldier for Jesus. I'm carrying my mobile phone. That's no inspiration. But when the world sees an army of people going to church with their Bibles, they know where they're going on a Sunday morning. And it speaks to them and it challenges them. This man, he was ready to be challenged. And Jonathan was willing to be his example. You know, when uh, Charles, uh, when uh, Livingstone was out in... um, uh, in Africa and they took, sent Stanley out to try and find him he found him and it spoke to him when he saw how Livingstone was living and he became a Christian and he said these words it wasn't Livingstone's preaching that converted me said Stanley it was Livingstone's living in other words it wasn't just taught it was caught and it was caught by those nearby and we don't have to go big at first we start small. You know, I heard about some, uh, some people who have been shown around a factory where they made huge girders and things out of steel. And they went into this place and they had this huge girder that was hanging by chains. And the man who was uh, uh, going around, he said, I want to show you something. You'll blow you away. And they got a cork. You know a cork out of the top of a wine bottle? A little, you know how light those things are? They had a cork hanging on a thread, like the thread your mum used to have in her sewing box. And they hung it from the ceiling, and he pulled it back, and he let it go against this steel girder. And he kept doing it, kept doing it. A little cork, just gently hitting against it. At first, it seemed nothing was happening. Do you know what? They came back, and the thing was vibrating. They came back later and it was swinging because the impact had gradually worked its way through. And this is what God will do as you and I are an example to others. He will work in the lives of others so they also join the battle and are ready to go forward and serve Christ.
So that's where he started. That's where you and I need to start. Who will you seek to inspire for the Lord? Not impress. We're not talking about trying to be Pharisees. Showing off in our prayers on street corners and all the rest of it. The Lord isn't impressed with that. But seeking to inspire for the Lord. Thirdly, his spirituality. This is the third thing David, uh, Jonathan brought out. Sorry, I keep saying David. Verse 8. Jonathan said, come then, we will cross over towards the men and let them see us. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Heard about a man who was a journalist and he was uh, a, a, a travel journalist and he was uh, traveling somewhere, I think it was in Switzerland, and he was in a, 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 a cafe and it was lunchtime and he was having some meal and he had his, uh, uh, his papers out and he was writing his, his piece he was working on. And as he was in, in there and it was uh, busy in the place, suddenly a beautiful smell filled the whole restaurant. And he turned to the restaurant owner and he said, where is that beautiful smell coming from? It wasn't the smell of food, it was a beautiful fragrance. And he said, well, if you look down the other end of the the restaurant, you see all these men have come in on their lunch break. They all work at a perfume factory. (laughs) And it's on their clothes and it spreads. And do you know what the Bible says? That we as Christians have the fragrance of Christ on us. Some people will love it, some people hate it, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. But if you're walking with the Lord, you'll have the fragrance of the Lord on you. And it will be evident in your life and in the way you live. And this was true with Jonathan. The fragrance of Christ, the spirituality of the man is seen in the way he lives. Now remember, he's going into battle. This is not a small thing. And so he doesn't want to just take a young man and put his life on the line. So he seeks guidance from the Lord. And what you've got here is a contrast between Jonathan, who is seeking the Lord's guidance about whether to go up and fight the Philistines, and the uh, situation with Saul earlier on, where Saul is totally unaware, even though he's got a priest wearing the ephod, which is supposed to give guidance from God. But he's a backslidden priest, he's not, he's not right. So he's ignorant, and Jonathan is walking with the Lord spiritually, and has the wisdom of God. And he asked the Lord for a sign, uh, like Gideon in the past with his fleece. And if the men see them when they come out and say, come up here, we'll show you something, they'll take that as a sign that God's given them the victory. And that was their prayerful consideration. They made it, uh, uh, they, they, they sought the Lord's guidance in this matter. And they said, this will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Well, you know what happened. The uh, Philistines did see them. They say these Hebrews, and that's the name that is used when the, the Jews are among a majority of Gentiles, which tells you how bad this situation was. The Hebrews are coming out of their holes. And they said, come up here and we'll teach you a lesson. We'll show you a trick or two, is uh, basically what they mean. And Jonathan knows the Lord has given them into his hands. There was a sign. And I love what he says, by the way, in verse 12. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. There's no ego with this man. He doesn't say the Lord has given them. He's honored my spirituality. 
and now I'm going to have a great... He says, no, the Lord's given them into Israel's hand. This man is totally self, unconscious of himself, but he's walking with the Lord, and he's living a spiritual life. And do you know what? That's what we need if we're going to inspire others. We need to live spiritually. And that means seeking the Lord for our lives, how we live. Guidance is not just something for when you need a new job. Guidance is an everyday thing in the Christian life. Remember when Saul of Tarsus was converted on the road to Damascus, when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ, what was the first thing he said? Lord, what would you have me do? Guidance from the beginning. His life wasn't his own. You are not your own. You're bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. In other words, seek the Lord for everything in your life and live spiritually. Somebody said that the best person to have guidance from is not someone on the ground where they see everything where you are, but someone in a plane or with a satellite looking down because that way they have the bigger picture. And spiritually, that's what we have in the Lord. We have the Lord to look up to and say, Lord, guide me today. Who do you want me to speak to? What do you want me to do today? Do you want me to stay at home today? I have a day at home today. Or do you want me out there today? Do you want me doing this, that or the other? And let God be the guide in your life. I love hearing how God guides people. You know, these two people, these dear people, uh, are German missionaries. I believe they're German anyway, because they were at a German missionary college. And uh, they went out with Africa Inland Mission. Their names are Christoph and Heidi Rauch. And uh, they were seeking the Lord. They'd finished one mission assignment, and they were seeking the Lord. Lord, what would you have us do? Where would you have us go? And they were looking at a map of Uganda, And in this map of Uganda, they saw some mountains, two mountains. It reminded me of this in this story of the two cliffs. And, you know, in German, the names of the mountains spoke to them. The names of the mountains said, meant, tell something. Tell something. I said, Lord, is that you? Are you guiding us? to go to these people who live here to be missionaries and they prayed about it and then Africa Inland Mission got in touch with them at the same time they were praying said we're looking for somebody to lead a team to go into this place and said could we go here and they said that's where we've been praying for nine years to send somebody God God guides those who wait on him and that's the type of life that will inspire others to walk with the Lord The final thing we see here is his success. Because in verse 13 to 23, as the story moves on and the battle goes on, then uh, we see Jonathan has great military success. In verse 13, it says, Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. Now, if you picture this situation, Jonathan and David climb up those steep cliffs All right, they get to the top. I mean, that was brave to climb up that. If the Philistines had decided to throw rocks on them, they'd have been killed. But they went in faith, they climbed to the top, and a small area, half an acre, Jonathan, because his armour bearer's got his armour, is doing the old school book. Come on then, come on then. And they start falling. You know, the old two one, he knocks them out, and they start falling down. He can't believe it. 
And his armour bearer, who's got his armour, he's coming on. Jonathan, Jonathan's saying, I knock him down, you kill him. And that's what it means. The armour bearer came along, he came on the sword, and he was going, ugh, ugh, ugh. And they killed 20 men, Philistines armed, and God gave a great victory. Do you know that had a ripple effect through the army of the Philistines? So much so, they started nerve, getting nervous, and God sent an earthquake. And it's unclear whether the earthquake was caused by their shaking or by God working with them. But it had a ripple effect. And the men in the Philistine camp started fighting each other. Saul became troubled by this. And uh, his lookouts, who were at Gibeah, remember, he's hiding in a cave, so nobody, he doesn't know what's going on. But his lookouts come and tell him. So what does he do? He says, we're going to find out who's gone. And he gets his priest to, to, to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield. Now, that didn't go too well back in chapter 4 when, the first, when they did that last time. But he's, he's backslidden, so he doesn't know better. And uh, he tells the priest to put his hand in. Now, what that means is the priest is wearing an ephod which had what's called the umim and the thummim, which were two stones inside with a sort of guidance mechanism spiritually to be used with the tabernacle as he stood before the Lord. But as the forces are melting away, Saul even forsakes guidance. You see, he's nothing like his son. And he says, oh, don't bother, just pull your hand out, we're going. And then what happens is, he goes and joins the fight. Verse 20, then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. By the way, that's where the word mishmash comes from. You probably thought that when I read that. Mikmash is a Hebrew word. When it got translated into Yiddish, which is like European Hebrew, it became mishmash, which means confusion, which is how we use it. Oh, it's a mishmash. Well, this is what was happening in the Philistine camp. There was confusion. And Saul and his army decided to go and join the fight, you think, now. And then verse 21 Another group comes. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Now this group is a group of people who perhaps were mercenaries to the Philistines fighting their own people. Can you imagine such traitors? But they turn around on the battlefield and they say, well, we're on the winning side now, so we're going to join the winning side. We're going to fight the Israelites. It may have been that they were slaves. That's another theory. But the third group is the people who were hiding in the hills of Ephraim, the soldiers in verse 23. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. Sounds like something out of uh, a television program, doesn't it? But these men also came down because they saw God was giving victory to to Jonathan. And it says they fled and they chased the battle all the way to Beth-Avon. That's where it is literally on the map. They pushed them right back out of that territory where they'd come into. And the simple message is this. When you start walking with the Lord and the Lord blesses you, that will inspire others to do the same. And it starts off with one person, then it has a domino effect, and soon more and more and more. We see this in life all the time. When Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile, nobody had done it before. And then bang, 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 kept happening, athlete after athlete. It became every day, oh, and everyone's done it. When Edmund Hillary climbed Mount Everest, it was like news. Then another person did it, and now we do it all the time. 
it's not, nobody, nobody even reports all the people who climb Mount Everest. It happens so many times every single month of the year, except when it's extreme. And, you know, this is what happens here spiritually. When they see, they follow. And that's, that's the success that God gives. And do you know what? Knock-on success is what happens when we follow the Lord. There was a man by the name of David Brainerd. David Brainerd was a missionary to the Indians in North America. A man who laid his life down, literally, and died as a young man to take the gospel to the Indians. He wrote a diary, I'm reading at the moment. It uh, is totally mind-blowing, the godliness of this man. That diary fell into the hands of a young man by the name of William Carey. A boy who worked in a shoe cobbler's shop. And he read how David Brainerd went as a missionary to the Indians. And he said, why aren't we going as missionaries? And David, uh, uh, William Carey said, I'm going to go to India. And he started the great missionary movement. And from him flowed all the other great missionaries and the great missionary societies that we have today. God gave success to the one who was walking with the Lord. And it had a knock-on effect. I pray that this will be the conclusion of us deciding to live for Jesus today. Now, I've spoken to most of the people here today who are Christians. And I want to just say this to those who are not Christians. Maybe you've met some Christians who are very uninspiring. I certainly have. And maybe you've been hurt by somebody who's an uninspiring or a bad example of a Christian. Let me just say this. J.C. Ryle used to say, don't judge the master by the servants. And that's a general rule. Don't judge the master by the servants. The Lord Jesus is far better than the best of us. Put your trust in him and follow him. And then seek to lead others to do the same. D.L. Moody, when he was a young man, held an old man in church saying this word to his friends. The world has yet to see what God will do with a man who's totally committed to him. And D.L. Moody said, by the grace of God, I will be that man. And he was. Let's seek to be an inspiration to one another, to live for the Lord and share the gospel. We'll see.